Well, good morning to each one of you. As we open up God's Word, let's bow for a word of prayer again. And I want to ask that you would think about all that we've been singing this morning, the good news of the gospel and Jesus on His throne, and that you would ask God right now to meet you with whatever you're bringing in this morning, burdens, cares, joys. Say, Lord, teach me from your word this morning. Just ask the Lord to do that. Lord, we come before you today, and we are a needy people. Everyone came in here this morning. They each represent a life, a past week, uh, numerous events that took place. Some things were encouraging, some were discouraging. Some might have been good news to hear, and others might have heavy burdens that we carry. But yet, this morning, our eyes have been on you. And now as we open up your word, we believe that your word is alive and powerful. We believe the Holy Spirit is at work in each one of us. We believe that all the things we have had to navigate in the past week were not an accident, but you've been at work in our lives. And we want to see you this morning in clearer ways. So Lord, open our eyes and help the message impact us in the deepest recesses of our heart and where it needs to impact us. So Lord, we give this time to you and we ask that you would open our hearts to receive for your honor and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And there are, there's an outline in the bulletin if you want to follow along with that this morning. We're going to make three hopefully simple points uh, that will be able to connect with you and that God can use in your lives. But you can see that I've entitled the message this morning, When Jesus Becomes Religion. And that's for a reason that I'm using that particular title because it's so easy for us just to want to put Jesus into our religious structures and allow him to just fit into his nice little comfortable spot in our life um, rather than what Jesus wants to do. And so that's what we want to look at this morning in this text. We are in the middle of five stories, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and then going up through chapter 3, verse 6. And these stories are stories of confrontation. So when you begin in chapter 2, verse 1, there is conflict. It's just not put into words. Jesus doesn't respond. They don't respond to Jesus. But you can feel the intensity of what's going on. And then we've got three stories in the middle there, and we're right in the middle of those. And in each one of these stories, conflict is obvious. It's actually verbalized. And it's going to intensify as we go through this time as well. In fact, one commentator has said this about it. He said... In each encounter, the authority of Jesus explodes the formulas and categories into which people would press him. Jesus is like the expansive new wine 
that needs its own wineskin. And so that's actually taken right out of our passage this morning. They're trying to press Jesus in when Jesus becomes religion, just part of the religious system. But Jesus is going to explode all of that. So the intensity is going to build until, look at chapter 3, verse 6. By the time we get to the end of these five stories where conflict has been there each step of the way, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So I've referred to his, uh, Mark's gospel as Jesus in your face, and here's another example of it right here. We're only chapter 3, verse 6, and already the confrontation has escalated to the point that Jesus is right there, and they don't like him. They want to get rid of him. Um, so we've, we're in the middle of these five stories. Now, let me introduce what I want to say this morning. Um, back when I was at Taylor University, which was a number of years ago now, you think about Andrew and his age, he was not born yet. So it's that long ago. Um, our daughter's 23. She was born while we were there. I was in a residence hall for a while, and then I taught psychology for three years. That's where I began my teaching career, developmental psychology, child psych, adolescent psych, intro to psych. And it was in that time that I had to teach all these different you know, terms that I had never really learned before. And one of the things was that when we are confronted with information, we, we have to do something with that information so that we can gather understanding. And there are two different ways that we process information. The first one is assimilation. And so assimilation means that we put new information into existing frameworks. So we are confronted with new information. We go, aha, I know what that is. I understand that. So think of your mind as a file system. You know, the old pull out the drawer and it's got file folders in it or it, however that works on our computer too. We have little drawers that we we pull out and we stick pictures or other files in those folders. Think about our mind being that way. Assimilation is when you are confronted with new information, you go, aha, I know exactly how that fits into my system. I open up this folder and that's where the phone bill goes. I open up this folder and that's where sermon notes go. I have an existing framework that can handle that information. There's a second way that we process information and that is what we call accommodation. And accommodation means that we have to alter the existing framework or concepts or ideas in order to receive the new information. So in other words, we receive this new information. It's like, uh, uh, this, I'm not quite certain how this fits in. We have to figure that out. That's the process of accommodation. The file folder has to be restructured just a little bit. Now, the ultimate goal is for that new information to be actually assimilated. And so we might have to restructure our file system, but then we go, oh, now I get it. And so we might have to add a new file folder or something to our system to grasp it. Now, let me illustrate this very simply. You think about a dog, you know, a doggy. And so a kid is confronted with a doggy. And so we've got, you know, furry animal, walks on all fours, has a tail, makes funny noise, you know, ruff, 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 you know, so that little creature comes in and you go, doggy. And so a kid starts learning, oh, that's, a, that represent, that's an idea for a doggy. That's the term I put for that doggy. And so the, the child gets into another situation where there it is again, four-legged creature, furry tail, um, you know, makes strange noises. And then all of a sudden it's like, doggy. And you go, no, 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 that's, that's a kitty. And so in that child's mind, it's like, wait a second, I thought I had this down, four-legged, furry, has a tail, makes funny noises. So then what begins to happen is accommodation. 
has to take place. And so the new idea causes this child to alter what's already known. So the file system has to change. You follow me on this? So it's like, I can't stick all four-legged furry creatures with a tail that make funny noises into my doggy file. It's like, whoa, rearrange now. I've got two files. Now there's a doggy and there's a kitty. But our ultimate goal is assimilation, that, okay, now I got it. So the next time I'm confronted with a four-legged furry creature with a tail says, meow, meow, okay, I, I got that, kitty file. If it goes rough, rough, bow, wow, whatever, that goes in the doggy file. Now it's all assimilated in. Our natural desire is to take new information and to fit it somewhere. We're lazy people overall, and so accommodation requires too much work. That's why you can actually be arguing with someone and you can be making a very clear point to them and they're like, no, 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 no. I'm just gonna stick it in this file. Don't ask me to make any changes here. This is where that fits. I'm shutting you down now. We, we're just lazy and we would rather just put things where they belong. And so it's perceived as stubbornness and refusal or whatever it might be, but that's just our natural tendency. When we come to our text this morning, that's what we're running into. Jesus has arrived on the scene. He's here. He's arrived on the scene. And so what do people want to do with Jesus? They want to put Jesus into their existing framework. And so the thought is, this is our religion. Jesus, you fit right here. This is where you fit. Don't ask us to restructure anything. Don't mess with our lives. You fit right here in our lives. But Jesus doesn't fit into any existing category. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he explodes everything. He alters everything. Everything changes because of him. And we've got to wrestle with that in our own life as well. You've got the status quo religious system here. And they want Jesus to fit into it. And what we're going to try to understand today is, do we also have a status quo religious system and we want Jesus to fit into our system as well. That's what we have to think through if this passage is to have the kind of impact that it needs to have on our lives. So look at Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Follow along as I read. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the new wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What in the world is going on in this passage? We have three points um, that we want to make this morning, that I want to make this morning, that I hope will help us understand this. So our first point you can see in your bulletin is the confrontation. So in understanding the confrontation, we have a question about religious practice. It's a question about religious practice. So in chapter two in verse 18 there, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now there's no reason given for this fast here. It seems to be voluntary. If it was 
um, demanded or part of the law of the Old Testament, then Jesus and his disciples would have been fasting too. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and he was not opposed to all the teaching of the Old Testament. He acted in faith with all the teaching of the Old Testament. So what's going on here must be something different. And we do know that in that particular culture, even today, um, there was a sense of being very devout in relationship with the Lord. And so even with the Pharisees, they fasted two times a week from sun up, sun up to sundown on Monday and Thursday were the two days where they found themselves fasting. And it was because they were devoted. This was a common Jewish experience. And even when you get into the early church, they continued with that kind of fasting. Even early believers in the church, they would fast also two days a week because a lot of the Jewish roots some things just carried over. But instead of fasting on Monday and Thursday, which they refused to do because hypocrites, Pharisees, people like that fasted on Monday and Thursdays, they chose Wednesday and Friday. But it was a part of their devotion to the Lord. It was a part of their looking unto the Lord that would lead to that in their lives. And so Jesus here is, is not fasting. His disciples are not fasting. And, but for devotion purposes, they generally would fast. When you look at this next slide, you see generally fasting is abstaining from anything. It's not just food, but abstaining from anything to more clearly focus on the Lord. See the devotion there? I want my eyes to be on the Lord. Therefore, I'm going to deny myself in some kind of way so that my focus can be on the Lord. It's to realize more fully our dependency, to stir up a renewed devotion to the Lord. The purpose is to take our eyes off the things of this world, focus completely on God. So it's often coupled with prayer. A part of fasting is praying and engaging with the Lord. Why? Because the whole purpose of the abstaining is to get our eyes on the Lord. It helps us gain a new perspective a renewed alliance upon God as we await his coming. And so for Old Testament saints, even today, there was a sense of looking forward to this coming of the Lord. And because we want to be vigilant, because we want to be sober-minded, because we want that to be our focus, fasting was true for them and fasting could be true for us as well. Now, the text goes on, verse 18, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The question is not whether or not one should fast. Um, it's, it, or it is a question about whether or not one should fast, not how often or how many days. Hey, I notice we fast more or whatever it might be. It's this whole issue of why are your disciples not fasting when these disciples are fasting? In that sense... The question isn't one of conflict. It really is about devotion. But because of what's going on behind the scenes, because of the crescendo of conflict that we see building, it really is a confrontation. In other words, Jesus, your disciples are not the real deal. If they were the real deal, they would be fasting. They would be devoted like these disciples are. Why are your disciples not fasting in that way? They obviously do not value our religious system. They don't value how we do religion here. And so there's a struggle. They're looking at Jesus basically. Here's the conflict. You're not fitting into the mold. And your followers are not fitting into the mold. 
And that's of concern to us, Jesus. Why is it that you're not fitting into the mold? And so again, let's step back from the story. If we're really gonna grasp what's going on here, we have to feel this sense of connection that this is often what we want from Jesus too. We just want him to fit in. We don't want him to transform anything. We don't want him to alter anything. We just want him to assimilate right into our existing world. We want a Jesus who doesn't require anything of us. We want a Jesus of convenience. We want a Jesus who doesn't mess with our life. Jesus, you just, you fit right here. Or, as is often the case, we want a Jesus who makes our life better. Jesus, just fix everything for me. Make my life better. Don't mess with anything. Just fix it all and make my life better. A Jesus who solves everything. So that's the confrontation that's going on. Now, notice the second point in our outline. Jesus gives an immediate answer. Now, he's going to give an ultimate answer, but he's going to give an immediate answer. And his immediate answer is the Messiah's presence causes a different response. The Messiah's presence causes a different response. So we find this in in verses 19 and 20. Now, he's got more he wants to say in 21 and 22, but he's going to give that immediate answer first. And he answers with a question. Now, Jesus often does this, especially in the face of conflict. Someone's asking him a question, and what does he do? He responds with a question and puts it back on them. And here, he's also responding with a metaphor. You got the bridegroom imagery. That's a part of this particular response. He wants them to think. And the metaphor of the bridegroom is not going to be lost to their ears. Very much, this is a part of their thinking. Got a couple of examples that you can see from the Old Testament in Ezekiel 16, Isaiah 62. There's so many passages that we could put down. This morning, we've even read through Revelation 19, which talks about that bride, bridegroom imagery, the marriage of the marriage feast of the Lamb, that day that's coming when we will feast. The reason we see that in Revelation, it's just pulling all of this Old Testament imagery forward and it's culminated in this coming of Christ. Well, they understood all that. Now, how much they understood of what Jesus is saying, we don't really get their response. So we don't know how much they could feel this, but there are two implications that are given here. The first one is, that the Messiah is here. So using that bridegroom imagery, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is actually with them? Now, are they gonna get that? Or are they gonna get, hey, this promised one, the one who enters into a relationship with his people and ushers in this eternal kingdom, is he actually with us right now? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, can they fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What is Jesus saying? The bridegroom is here. The Messiah is here. And the presence of the Messiah is going to cause a different kind of response. So throughout the Old Testament, there's this teaching you know, about the, the one who's coming. And now Jesus is here. And it's been very clear that Jesus is the Messiah. From the very beginning, Jesus in your face is what Mark is doing for us. John the Baptist, after me is coming one, and then Jesus arrives on the scene. Got a voice from heaven that comes. We've got this new authority. We've got this new teaching. Demons are being cast out. They're calling out, we know who you are. 
I mean, it's very clear that Messiah is here. Now, the point that Jesus is making is they don't recognize he's here. Why would they be fasting? Because they're still waiting for his coming. Look at our definition again. As, the very last words, as we await his coming. And so there was this looking for this day when Messiah is going to come. And so we want to be vigilant. We want to be sober-minded. We want our focus to be there. And so fasting has a role so that we don't get caught up in the things of this world and live for these kind of things. We keep our eyes where it needs to be. And Jesus is saying, not so now, I'm here. You follow me on this? I mean, not so. The Messiah is here. The king was in their midst. And when the king is there, what does that call for? Well, Revelation 19, it's the marriage feast of the lamb. There's to be feasting when Messiah actually comes onto the scene. Instead, they're fasting because they don't recognize who is in their midst. Did they get this? If they did, then they feel exposed at this point in time. Text doesn't tell us. But obviously something must be getting through. Now, the second implication is found in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. And so the second implication, the Messiah must die. He's taken away. Now, that's a, that's a, a, a statement that has everything to do with what is about to happen with Jesus. Now, again, if they're catching the point this is not going to connect with them because when the bridegroom comes, he doesn't go away again. You, you, this is unimaginable. When the bridegroom comes, there's this big celebration and then the bridegroom stays with his bride forever. That's the promise of the Old Testament. That kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord because Messiah comes, ushers in his kingdom. The disciples were always confused about this with Jesus. What do you mean you're going to die? Isn't now the time you set up your kingdom? Isn't this it? So they pulled out their swords. They were ready to take the Romans down. And this kingdom was going to become the Lord's. And then even after he was resurrected, they said, is now the time? Because we're still ready for the kingdom. Because when the bridegroom came, it was supposed to be the kingdom. There was no, not supposed to be a taking away. And this is where Jesus creates a lot of confusion when he comes to the earth. They wanted the victory that the king was supposed to bring. But here we get a very clear glimpse into Jesus. He understands his mission in life. And later on, when this gospel is written, the ones who read this gospel, they would get the fact that Jesus understood this from the very beginning. The bridegroom is in their midst, but the bridegroom came to give his life a ransom for many. And so the bridegroom is going to go to the cross and ultimately and die for his people. He would be taken away. And again, look at chapter three, verse six. The plot is going to thicken really quick because the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel and the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So one way of seeing Jesus go to the cross is the religious leaders are gonna get so ticked off at him, they're gonna kill him. But we also know the other perspective is Jesus is willingly laying down his life and giving his ransom, his life a ransom for many. And Jesus says, when that happens, when he's taken away, look at, look at it in verse 20, then they will fast in that day. And so here's where we're in this weird sense of the already not yet, aren't we? The kingdom is here. Jesus has come. We feast. And tonight you'll be observing the Lord's Supper. Do you understand in, in part what the Lord's Supper is? The Lord's Supper is a looking back 
It's, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's proclaiming the Lord's death. What's the next words? Until he comes. And so we're in that already not yet where Messiah has come and the Messiah is going to come again. And so in the fact that Jesus is now gone and seated on his throne, as we've been singing about this morning, there is an element in our lives, as Jesus says, then they will fast. Why? Because we're still up against the kingdom of darkness. We still live in a fallen world. We're still in a, a world of difficulty where, where wars rage and darkness can overcome. And it's a very difficult place to live. And so there may still be a sense of fasting. The king has come, we're feasting, but we're also fasting. Why? Because we too want to remain vigilant as we wait for that coming day. We want to live soberly. Look at what this commentator said right here. He says, it was with reference to sustaining the life of faith and growth in the Christ likeness that fasting continued to be practiced in early Christianity. Jesus was gone. Kingdom of darkness was there. The dis discipline of physical privation or denying yourself things in fasting was an aid to watchfulness, contrition, and strength and sensitivity in the Christian life. You see, we can really become so easily enamored with the things of this world as we even read in Luke chapter 12, I think it was this morning. So we can get caught up in all these things. And then when we deny ourselves of these things, what does that help us do? It helps us remind ourselves this world is not our home. We, we actually are looking forward to something else. So it can be an aid to watchfulness and contrition where our, our hearts are changed because we're meeting the Lord in special ways and strength and sensitivity in the Christian life. And then notice, why? As we await his coming. Because the feasting is here. We celebrate, but we're also waiting. And so Jesus says, then they will fast. And so Jesus isn't saying, that's a command I leave with you. And so we have three ordinances within the church. We've got Lord's Supper, we've got baptism, and we've got fasting. No, that's, this is not a prescription for us. Just like in the Old Testament, what the Pharisees were doing, the disciples of John were doing, it was not a prescription. They weren't following, you know, this particular command in Leviticus chapter 31 or whatever it might be, because there's no 31 chapters in Leviticus. If they aren't following that, instead, it's because they are looking forward to and they want this life of devotion. And so Jesus says, if fasting has any place, it doesn't have a place right now because Messiah is in your midst. But in that day, there may be a place for fasting because you're being watchful. You want to be mindful of the coming of the Lord again. And so as we wait for him and as we look for his work to be done on this earth, and we may also fast. But that's Jesus' immediate answer. He still has more he wants to say. And so we have point number three. And this, this is Jesus' ultimate answer. He's going to use this moment to blow this thing up and make it really big. This is not just about fasting. This is way bigger than that. So this is Jesus' ultimate answer. And so when you get to verses uh, 21 and 22, all of a sudden there may be a sense of, why did Jesus go here? Okay, they're talking about fasting. And so, so why does he all of a sudden give these two illustrations? I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's making this thing bigger for them. His point is not just that he's physically here. Now he's gonna make the point the Messiah's presence causes a radically different life. And it's not just the fact that Messiah is here, but when he talks about his presence here, I think Jesus is saying, hey, 
my whole ministry, my, my birth, my life, my death, burial, resurrection, the fact the Messiah comes and does all of this, it's gonna bring about a whole different response. You see, Jesus is a game changer. Everything changes because of him. Once my son and I were playing in the um, Brea Community Center uh, Basketball League, and we, were, we had this team going, and we were, we were winning, I think, fairly good at about halftime, and this 6'8 dude walks in. Game changer. And when he walked in, Everything changed, and we had no way to cover him. I mean, he dominated, but when he came onto the scene, it was no longer about, hey, business as usual, guys. Let's just do the same thing we did in the first half. We'll take this thing. Whoa, all right, now we've got to revise our game plan because the big dude is here. I mean, 6'8", whatever he was, he, he was just tall. That's what Jesus does. When Jesus comes on the scene, what he's trying to say to these folks is, listen, it's not going to be business as usual. Status quo is not going to continue here. Messiah's here. This is what the hope of all the Old Testament has been put on, and this is going to change everything from this point on into the future. So what does Jesus say? Verse 21, he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Verse 22, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, there's a few things that stand out to me. Number one, Jesus is very emphatic about this. Notice what he says. No one, I mean, just no one. You can almost feel in the language, no one in his or her right mind would ever do this. It's decisive. He's very emphatic about this. You just don't do this kind of thing. It's not smart. This is not what you do. It's very emphatic what he's saying here. And so he's trying to make a point with that. The new and the old are not compatible. And John and all that he's been proclaiming, that's the old. Everything that's been leading up to this point about Jesus, that's the old. But now Jesus is new. And this newness that Jesus brings, you don't stuff into the Old Testament, the Old Covenant religious system. This is a game changer here. Jesus doesn't, doesn't just fit into everything that's already existed. Now, everything will be redefined and Jesus will become central and the disciples of the Pharisees, the disciples of John, wanted Jesus to fit into the status quo. But Jesus is here, and so that's going to change everything. And so you don't put this new cloth, unshrunk cloth, on an old garment. Why? Because after you wash the cloth, that cloth is going to shrink down. The tear gets worse. You just wouldn't do that. You don't put new wine into an old wineskin. Why? Because the old wine has already fermented and stretched the skin out beyond, I mean, all the way to its you know, breaking point. And now if you stick new wine in it, it's going to ferment, expand it out again. It's going to bust. You're going to lose the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. You don't do that. And so you don't take Jesus and put him into that old covenant. With the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the behavior that was appropriate back then is now going to be redefined. It's incompatible. Now there's something new appropriate because Jesus is here. The kingdom of God is here.
And so we've got Galatians that deals with this issue. What do we do with Jesus and the Old Covenant? Got Hebrews that deals with this issue. What do you do with Jesus in the Old Covenant? And Jesus is really initiating all that right here for us. You don't put the new and old wineskins. Everything's going to be redefined because Jesus is here. He's a game changer. And the second thing that really stands out about these two illustrations is their finality. It's just their finality. The patch will pull away. There's no sense of, well, it might, so be careful. You don't want to do this. It may not work out for you very well. No, 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 no. It will pull away. The wineskins will burst. They will be ruined. And so what used to be good, which, what used to have a function, is no longer functional because of the new that is here. And so the point that Jesus seems to be making in this passage is that Jesus, the Messiah, does not fit into the religious system status quo of the day. He's a game changer. He transforms. He alters everything. Now, what do we naturally want to do when we're confronted with new information? We want to stick it into an existing file. We want to simply assimilate it right in. Jesus, here's where you fit. You fit right here. Nothing has to be altered or changed. But Jesus is saying, I won't assimilate into anything. When, when I come onto the scene, everything will be transformed. As Eric pointed out, at least at La Mirada a few weeks ago, I'm certain he made probably the same point here. Jesus is not just a good prophet who comes on the scene and does miracles. He's not just a long line, another Elijah. This is cool. Look, this guy's replacing John the Baptist. No, nothing will ever be the same because Jesus is here. He is that eschatological fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament has been looking forward to. Everything is pointed to Christ. He's not going to be integrated in. He's not going to be contained by all these pre-existing structures, even the religious system. He changes everything. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he brings a new teaching and people go, wow, with authority he teaches. He also brings a new authority. Wow, even demons obey him and are cast out. Even previous, a couple of weeks back in chapter two, verse 12, we've never seen anything like this. You see, that's what Jesus brings. So the question for the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees back in, in verse 18, as we've, we've, I've gone through this context, the question is not, will they make room? Will they fit Jesus into their existing world? Will they fit Jesus into their, question, into, into their religion, the status quo? The question is, are they going to completely forsake everything because Jesus is here? That's the question. Are they going to leave all that behind? And this is that struggle again. Remember in Hebrews, ah, it's such a big struggle. Why would you go back to all that? You've got Jesus. Jesus is the game changer. Will they now modify, alter transform everything, will Jesus become the singular focus for them? It's accommodation. It's not assimilation. And see, and this is where now we have to step back from the passage and say, well, what does this mean for us? Okay, the issue here was fasting and Jesus just blew it up, and made it really big. But how does this connect to our lives? And so we've got a question that we have to answer. Will we just fit Jesus into our existing world, the things we live for, or 
Will we let Jesus radically alter everything in our life so that it's all about him? See, in other words, will we fit Jesus in? Assimilation. Or will we let Jesus radically alter everything? Accommodation. Because Jesus appears in our life, everything now revolves around him. And here's where I think it really lands for us. I think in the evangelical world, the Christian church throughout time, especially in the United States of America, that's where I want to bring my focus, that's where we are, is we have somehow made Jesus all about the American dream. You know, whatever that American dream is for us, you know, the American dream that everybody has the opportunity and, and we can all make good money, we can, we can buy that home, we can, you know, settle down, get married, have 13 kids, whatever it might be, whatever God has for us out there, we somehow can make all of this, the rights that we have, the privileges that we have as citizens of the United States of America, and we can make that our life. And so when Jesus comes along, what do we want to do with Jesus? We just want to put him right in. We want him just to, to fit right into that American dream that we have. Okay, Jesus, this is the life I'm living in the United States of America. This is the life that I'm living. This is the life I want. This is the life I've dreamed of. Now that you're here, I acknowledge you, and I want you to fit right here. Just don't mess with anything. Just fit right here. I don't want you to affect the way I approach my job. I don't want you to affect the way I live in relationships. I don't want you to affect my experience in high school. I don't want you to affect my experience in college. I don't want you to mess with my family. Just, you, you, you can be tucked away right here. I will pray before my meals. I'll attend church on Sunday. That's a good thing to do. Might even put some money in the offering plate. That would be religious. And we just fit Jesus right in. But we continue to live for all the other things that we have to live for. Things that we've given such prominence because they're so important for us. And so as we step back from this passage, we have to stop and go, all right, what, what does it mean for Jesus to explode everything for us? What does it mean for Jesus to explode everything for us? Think about our calendars, okay? Just the way we approach our life on a weekly basis. If we just think about the week that's ahead for us, how do we just fit Jesus in or, or are we gonna let Jesus transform everything? 24-7, the way we approach tomorrow morning, the way we approach this week, it's going to radically change because Jesus is here. What does that mean? I, and again, don't let the word radical mess you up that somehow I'm going to be called to Tunisia and join the Woodruffs over there and spread the gospel to people who have never heard or I've got to go to some country that doesn't have a Bible translating their language and I've got to get my life to that. No, simply talking about Jesus being right in the center and everything revolves around him. The conversations that you have, the way you approach people. In other words, let's ask ourselves some questions. Are, are people hearing about Jesus because of you? Because that message is so precious to you that you're proclaiming that to others. And I'm talking about it in a winsome way. I was at Starbucks this morning and I saw a guy walk in with his Bible and he sat down and I walked in with my Bible and I sat down and I had a little notepad and he had a little notepad. And, and my first thought was, well, I wonder where he's preaching he must be getting ready for Sunday services. So I prayed for him. I prayed, Lord, speak through this guy. Just whatever he needs to find right now, just 
give him that last word before he stands before his congregation. And I went back to studying. And then some guys were over here talking about Islam and other religions of the world. Very thoughtful conversation that was going on. Finally, one of them stood up, threw his backpack on, said, I'm going to leave now. And he walks over and goes, hey, I see your Bible. Are you a Christian? He goes, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm actually just reading my Bible, just trying to, you know, understand more about who God is and who Jesus is. And he goes, well, I got one word for you. Think about eternity. We're all going to die. You die without Jesus, you're going to hell. You can say a simple prayer right now, ask Jesus to be your savior, and then you can have an eternity with him. I hope you have a good day. And then he leaves. (laughs) I'm sitting there embarrassed, embarrassed for the name of Christ. And so I've struggled, you know, I'm trying to, you know, get my notes together. I'm thinking about this. So finally I went over there and I said, mind if I sit down? So I just want to sit down for a little bit. And so I said, I couldn't help but hear that earlier conversation. And I'd like to have a different conversation with you. Can you tell me why you're studying the Bible? I'd like to know more about this. Well, this guy grew up in the evangelical church. His dad was a pastor at a church right up the road, close by, big church, sister church. Knows some people in this church. And I said, can you just let me in on your journey a little bit? And so we sat and had a great conversation. I wanted him to know about Jesus. I know he's got a mom and a dad praying desperately for him one day. But you know what he's wanting to do with Jesus? He's worked his way through the entire Old Testament. He's got a blog. And so I've got the blog address. And he's giving his own commentary on the Bible now. And now he's in Matthew. I told him we were in Mark. And he's reading through it. But you know what he's wanting to do? He's wanting to take all he's reading and stick it right into his religious system. That's what he's trying to do. You don't do that with Jesus. Jesus needs to explode everything for him. But what is that like for us? Again, are are people hearing about Jesus because of us? So we've got our account. What about a wallet? Just when we look at our checking account, savings account, whatever, we've got a little portfolio. Does Jesus just fit into that? Or is Jesus the center of all of our resources? And he's a game changer. He changes everything with that. When you think about your church here, are people growing in their love for Jesus because you're here, because you're functioning as a priest and inviting people to a deeper relationship? Or are you in and out? Are you using your gifts to build up the body of Christ In other words, has Jesus become a game changer for you? Well, these are all questions that we all have to ask ourselves. But my burden is that we don't walk away from this passage and go, man, the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees really needed to hear that. They really needed Jesus. I hope they got the message. My burden is, and this is what it's been like for me for a month now as I've been working through this, is honestly wrestling with do I have my little religious system and I'm just trying to fit Jesus into it or is Jesus a game changer for me? And it's one of those things where you have to search through the the different parts of your life and say, how has Jesus become my everything? In that passage we read this morning, again, I think it was Luke 12. It's so interesting the way Jesus talks about things and then he says, instead, seek the kingdom because that's where life ultimately is found. It's in that kingdom. So let's all bow for a word of prayer. Jesse's going to come and he's going to lead us in a song. But before he does, I want to encourage all of us in this room to sit down and in the quietness 
of this time reflect on our lives. Is Jesus central to everything? Or are you just fitting Jesus into the nice American dream and living life as normal and there's no impact he has in our lives? Let's honestly wrestle with this. The Pharisees missed it and they decided to put Jesus on a cross. If we miss it, we'll miss out on life abundant in what Jesus is all about. Let's spend some time praying.